Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the show, and thank you for tuning in. I am your host, T. Love, here at From the Heart Radio, and the founder and CEO of Soji Huggles Children's Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to providing underprivileged children with basic necessities of life. 
I'm also a board-certified integrative holistic health psychotherapist specializing in energy and vibrational sound therapy with a private practice in Sussex County, New Jersey, where From the Heart Radio streams to you live each and every week, bringing you optimistic and uplifting information from interesting people, people who are making a positive impact in our world. Today, our guest is Mark Nepo a man who has been moved and inspired readers and seekers all over the world as a best-selling author. He's published 24 books and recorded 16 audio projects, and his books have been translated into more than 20 languages. In 2015, he was given a Life Achievement Award by Age Nation. In 2016, he was named by Watkins Mind, Body, Spirit, as one of the 100 most spiritually influential living people and was also chosen as one of OWN's Super Soul 100. That's a group of inspired leaders using their gifts and voices to elevate humanity. Then in 2017, he became a regular columnist for Spirituality and Health magazine. Mark devotes his writing and teaching to the journey of inner transformation and the life of relationship. Elizabeth Lesser, who is a co-founder of Omega Institute, stated, Mark Nepo joins a long tradition of truth-seeking, wild-hearted poets, Rumi, Walt Whitman, Emily Dickinson, Mary Oliver, and deserves a place in the center of the circle with them. That is an absolute statement of truth. Mark continues to offer readings, lectures, and retreats, and you can learn more by visiting his site, marknepo.com. So please write this down now, M A R K. N-E-P-O dot com, and then check his site out after the show. So hello, Mark. You've joined me more than a few times on air, and it's always such a delight and truly a pleasure to have you. Thank you for gifting us with your time this evening on From the Heart Radio. How are oh, you doing? So- <laughs> I am doing well. Thank you. It's wonderful to be back with you. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you know, your books. Well, let's, let's go with this book. The Half-Life of Angels, it is so, so inspiring, as are all of your books, I must say that. But this one, I don't know, it felt different to me, very different. The, the words take us on a journey of our life as a reader in a way that I found to be deeply moving, that we are exploring, and I'm going to say I found it magical because it brings up that which we do not always see about ourselves, we don't give ourselves that breadth and depth of ability. And I'm trying to avoid giving away much here. I don't want to say, oh, spoiler alert. No. <laughs> but your poetry speaks to the soul. And it, for me, it, it's gently shaking our wonder of things, even our current beliefs, as it, it kind of brings to life what was just a few moments prior to reading a mystery. It was a mystery, and now oh. it's not. And this this book just feels different to me, and it could be due to where I am in my journey. I don't know, or where anybody yeah. even is. I, I think they take it differently. But what was the catalyst to this book? Well, thank thank you so much. I I'm, I have to say, I mean, every book is wonder is an amazing thing to to birth. Um, but this one, I'm very partial to too. I feel very close to it. And this is, you know, I think one of the things is, is uh, during the pandemic. I started to think about organizing my life's poetry into uh, different volumes and books. And so this is the first, there's going to be several, probably six or seven such volumes, but this is the first one. And this gathers, as you know, there are three books of poems in this one volume, and they're all gathered from the last 20 years of my 
my life, my 50s and 60s. I'm, I'm 72 now, and, uh, you know, when I met someone my age when I was younger, I thought they were ancient. It doesn't seem <laughs> so old now. <laughs> so it's, it's not. Yeah, it was. No, it's not. And so that it's been ver- very um, touching to go back and work through uh, uh, just all of the teachings. You know, and I think one of the things that's so interesting is, as you know from the book, I mean, I'm not interested in trying to revise everything I did when I was younger, uh, you know, because I don't want it to make it look like I didn't know then what I know now. Mm-hmm. And so this brings up a, right away a very interesting thing for all of us, and it's that, you know, Muhammad Ali said that if you're the same person at 50 that you are at 20, you've wasted 30 years. And <laughs> And it's true, you know, so it's not that who I was when I was younger was false, it was just limited. You know, I, I mm-hmm. knew and I was I was true to who I was as much as I knew, and then I grew, and so then there was more to be true to, and more and more, like rings of a tree. And so one of the things I think in this book is it sh- it kind of gives a, a personal example of that, and, and I, I do try to touch into the common questions and journeys and pains and joys that we all experience. I think you did that very well. And I think too that, you know, we are we are limited at each age because it depends on how far we've come in our growth, right? So if yes. I read this and someone else reads it at the same age perhaps we'll be at different places. And maybe somebody who's, you know, much younger would be much further along. We don't know. It's, it depends on your growth pattern. And I was, I'm wondering, have others commented about it being different from your other works or feeling different, or is it just me and because of the fact that, yeah, we all grow, we've read your books for years, and now we're reading this one and thinking, oh, this feels different to me. It feels, there's a growth pattern here, like, like a leap, like I took a leap. Does that make sense? Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Well, and I think, you know, because it was, I put it together at this time of life, looking back over the last 20 years, I think it, it does capture, and, and there is a, it does capture an arc of learnings and integrating things. Uh, and, and I think that's one thing I've learned too. You know, I've been blessed, as you know, to be able to birth so many books. Uh-huh. And, you know, now at this point of my life, they all, they all kind of go together, which, you know, I think, which again speaks to a life pattern. It's like we live forward, but we map backwards. You know, like I, you, we live things and we don't know, oh, my, where am I going? And, and I'm, I try to make plans, but, you know, life doesn't honor plans. That's just a way to get right. into being real. And so, but then when I look back, you know, the books, they make sense. Whereas mm-hmm. I lived them forward. And I think, you know, Ralph Waldo Emerson had a wonderful saying. He basically said that any question that we would ask about life, it, it, it's waiting in our experience. It's like a hieroglyphic that we, we decode it as we live. We, he said we, we, we uh, live it first and then we apprehend it as truth. And it's like, you know, everyone has their own language of wisdom, and every experience 
if we really face it and process it, decodes a word in our own wisdom for us. And so then a, a, an experience at a time, we start to learn our own wisdom. And then looking back, it makes sense. That's so true. And I think your book brings that out. It allows you, as you're reading it, to go to that place and see and to not reminisce, but to just go back and look and say, oh, I see this now. I see what the trajectory was that I didn't know at the time, and I understand where it brought me. And you can also get the lessons of your life out of that, too, the growth that you've come through with, the the fact that you went through whatever and where you are. So let me uh, let me read one poem uh, from there that really spe- is a good example of this. And I couldn't have written mm-hmm. this poem when I was younger, just because of sheer years of living. And it's about um, you know having plans, but discovering that life is so much more than plans. What really matters, you know, Winston Churchill said, "Planning is essential, but plans are useless." And mm-hmm. <laughs> And, and I, uh, for me, what that means is the planning, the planning readies us, but not for what's going to happen. They just ready us inwardly to meet life that's unrehearsed. So this is the poem. It's called Praying I Will Find. I used to have so many plans, good plans, grand plans. In the beginning, I would be annoyed by the calamities I'd meet along the way that would keep me from my plans. I used to pride myself on how I would get back on track so quickly. But the more I loved and the more I suffered, the more my plans were interrupted by those in need. Eventually, the call of life unexpected and unrehearsed made Swiss cheese of my plans. Now, like an emperor undressed by time, I wander the days naked of plans, praying that I will find love to give and suffering to heal before the sun goes down. That's a beautiful poem, and it's at the very end of book one in your tome, I shall call it, in this volume. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) That is beautiful, and it's very true. You know, um, the things that we meet along the way do keep us from our plans. And, you know, the more that you have loved and the more that you've suffered, the more your plans are interrupted by those in need. It's true. Everything about that is very true. And I think it makes us think as the reader how it applies in our own life. And I liked that. I liked being able to not just read the poem, but really apply it to something, like get into each word as you have written it. So that's beautiful. Yeah, thank you. And and it raises a lar- a, a larger thing that that we're talking about for for our society and for there's a there's a little parable um that speaks to this and and it, it's there's there's two monks and they've been told if they study long and hard they can have an appointment with Buddha at the top of this sacred mountain. So they will go when they work and they study together. And then finally one day they say they think they're ready. So they start making the climb up the mountain and halfway up one of them breaks his leg. And so the other one thinks, well, I'll, I'll make him comfortable and I'll make sure everything's okay. But tomorrow I'm, I don't want to miss my appointment with Buddha. So the next morning uh, the one who broke his leg isn't doing so well. 
and he's got a mm-hmm. fever, and it's not so simple. You, you, you can't just leave him. And then the parable stops and says, what would you do? And what the parable presents is when we have an age where more people will keep their appointment at the top of the mountain than tend to their broken other, well, we have an age that can engender cruelty. And when we have an age where more people will discover that tending their broken other is the summit, we have an age that will engender compassion. And every day, every one of us is faced with that choice. And it doesn't mean we don't work toward things or we don't have goals, but just like what I discovered in my poem after so many years, for me, it's so true for, for, for everyone. You know, it doesn't matter what you put on top of the mountain. You can put God on the mountain, Buddha. You can put wealth or security or whatever you want. If you insist on what's up there more than meeting life as it comes our way, uh, you're leaning toward cruelty. Mm-hmm. And we see that a lot, but then the next day we see a positive side of compassion. We see it in the news every day. It fluctuates right yeah. now. At least I'm seeing Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I agree. It's, um, it's, it's difficult because you'll see one thing and then a news story a few minutes later will be another. And you'll think, oh, okay, well, that's good. And then something else. It's almost like the scales are trying to balance out and yet, I want it to just weigh heavy on the good side, <laughs> not balance out, you well, know, you know but I, it's a fight. I, mm-hmm. I think, I think, you know, one of the things about our age and, and maybe this is a law of spiritual physics, if, if you will, is that, you know, things are always falling apart and things are always coming together at the same time. And together, you know, that is the cycle of life that's, that's mysteriously enriching and resilient and, and get, you know, even nature, right? Every, every winter things, the trees drop their leaves, it turns to mulch, and then in spring it's all over again. But in our, in our modern world, well, let me say this first, when things come together, they're very quiet. But when things mm. fall apart, they, they make a lot of noise. Yep. And in the modern world, we're addicted to the noise of things falling apart. And so it, it shouts and it crowds out. And right at the same time, things are coming together, but we don't always hear it because of the noise. Of, and then, you know, you look at the 24-7 news, it's blaring with the noise of things falling apart. And so we don't need like a good news station. We just need a whole W-H-O-L-E news station that says, hey, just like you're saying, well, here's something that's coming together, and here's something, yes, it's falling apart, but together they form this, this mysterious wholeness of life. And I think part of that is we've become so desensitized to things that it, that's why we're not hearing it. We don't hear it because it's just like, oh, another one, oh, another shooting, oh, another shooting, you know, and that's just horrific because to become that desensitized to it means we're not in the present, we're not paying attention to our life, paying attention to all that's out there. Yeah. And I liked your book because it speaks so well to, to nature as well, to, as you said, I believe it was um, the the sparks between us and the animals, us and nature, us and everything that's out there. That's not us, but sparks us. 
I, I like that a lot. Oh, well, thank you. And if there's a, if there's a poem that you're partial to, I'd be happy to read it if there's one or two that. There was. I was going to save it till the end, but <laughs> because oh, well, I, <laughs> there were so many that you know it's really hard when you have all these poems in the book to pick one. And I was going to ask you, do you have a favorite? Which is a very difficult question for the writer, you know. And if it's not a favorite, is there one that you go to often or think about often, or one that what was there the what was the first one that like inspired you to to be on this journey? Do you know what that one was? Oh well, no. I mean, I don't. I mean, that's going way, way back. But here's here's <laughs> here's one that that I'm just you know um, this is a, this is a lesson from our dog who's right here with me, Zuzu, at my feet. He's a yellow lab, Aww. and um, <laughs> yeah. And I'm always you know. I mean, there's an interesting thing. I, I have a friend actually who was my very first publisher many years ago, Joe Bruchak. He's a wonderful storyteller and an Abenaki elder and uh, and we were talking one time and you know I noticed that all of the uh, and then I'll read the poem but all of the um, uh, most of the stories that are teaching stories in the Native American tradition the animals are the teachers and I asked him about this and he said well it's because the great spirit realized that of all the creatures that the great spirit created human beings were the only ones that forgot their original instructions. And so the animals are the teachers. <laughs> That's probably so very true. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, so this is called the mute sage. When the jar fell off the counter and broke, our dog went to lick up the honey, but we were afraid she'd cut herself on the broken glass. You kept her back while I swept up the slivers. Later that night, it occurred to me that this is what it is to be human, always going for the honey while tiptoeing around the glass. The next week, it was so cold that ice stuck to our dog's pads. We had to stop every block or so to free her feet from clumps of ice. This, too, was a lesson, for without warmth, we can't make our way. As I write this, she dreams whatever dogs dreams. And I keep looking for whatever humans look for. That is really beautiful. And people, if you have the book, that's on page 183. I'm paying attention. <laughs> I'm doing my homework oh, while I'm listening to you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, it's really, it, it's amazing when you're reading through the book. Oh, I love this one. Oh, I love this one. Oh, do I love this one more than that one? And then I just got lost in the book and said, I don't even know which one I love the most. But <laughs> I, I do have a favorite that I'll tell you at the end, um, what, which okay. was mine. Because I want to see if it comes up during the conversation. But I do have an, an odd question for you now. I think in case people don't know, but I think most people probably know that a half-life is the amount of time it takes something, a given quantity of something, whatever it's medication to decrease to half of its initial value. And so I think the term is probably most commonly used in relation to like atoms and radioactive decay, yes, yes. but it can be used to describe anything, really any other types of decay. So whether it's exponential or not. So given that, what do you mean by the half-life of angels, and why did you opt for this as the title of your yeah. book? Yeah, so, so my, my feeling about, about and, and the title is totally intuitive, um, is, is it looks at the spark of life. And so my kind of intuitive spiritual sense of the title isn't about decay. 
it's it's about the spark of becoming. So like if you think of you know the famous painting of Michelangelo with God and yes. touching as and there's that little space, that yeah. little synapse, that little spark, that little spark that gives life. That to me is the half life of angels, the concentration of divine energy that that little thing between you and me, between us and our soul, between everything that's about to grow, that if it just touches, it comes alive. That's the half-life of angels, the spark that, that gives light and, and, and life to everything, and wherever we might find it. And so the whole book, all the poems here, explore and praise that mysterious spark. I love that. And explore is a perfect word because even though I found the book magical, as I said earlier, it is, it is magical. There's a magic to it in the exploration of it. There's a magic because, and I think that speaks to the spark or the half-life of angels, as you said, because, you know, you can have an, you can meet someone and immediately there's a spark. And then there are other people you meet and you think there's a different kind of spark, like, I don't ever want to see this person again, you know. That type of spark was like, yeah, okay, no, this isn't a good thing. But with animals, with nature, with the things that are truly, I don't know, so very pure, you know, there's that spark. There's that magic. I mean, I see magic when I'm outside giving Ritz peanut butter bits to the chipmunks, you know. (laughs) It's crazy. But they come over and they'll eat it out of my hand now. It didn't take long, but they'll they'll come over and, and take it off of my, my fingers and, you know, and go away and put it in their little pantry for the winter or perhaps they're eating them all because I give them a ton of them. Um, but, you know, it's that spark of being with something so pure and real and helping, helping. You know well, you're helping. Yes. And if there's anything that the, from the scientific definition of half-life – it's what, what decays here is what's in the way yep. that keeps us from that spark. And so when we, I think if anything, also my life with poetry has taught me, uh, it, it's been an exploration of the life of authenticity and what, mm. what's in the way. How, how do we, when we can be that, have that quiet courage to be present and real with each other that spark just is there it just shows up and and so i want to also mention though because some people who might be listening think oh poetry i hated that when i was in school well my my understand my definition of poetry is not rhyme and meter or how it appears on the page i've i have experienced poetry my whole life and it informs all my books not you know it's the unexpected utterance of the soul that helps us be here and thrive. And I just happen to write it down. Everyone has a poet in them. Everyone, if they follow that unexpected utterance of the soul, um, arrives at that spark. Yes, it's not the poetry that we all learned with stanzas or haikus or whatever. It's the poetic writing. And it's not even, it's not even the, the writing itself, it's the words. It's the meaning and the feeling that was put into it. You can feel what you put into your words. 
And as a reader, oh, that any, anything that anybody reads that they can feel what the author was trying to get across and clearly did, that's a poetic reading. And I should have said this is not a book of poetry, and I apologize for that because I know there are people who think, oh, God, poems. No, these are not – if you just read through this, you're going to get so much more out of it than somebody who says, here are the tools you need to use for A, B, C, D, E. And this is what you need to do. You need to do it five times a day. And you need to do, uh-uh, you're going to get this just by reading it. There will be growth with each page. I guarantee it. I guarantee there will be growth. There has to be because you can't help but feel what you put into your poetic writing. Well, thank you. And, and I want to share something else about my process, too, that I think is not just the writing process, it's the introspective process. And that is that when, I, I don't know where these poems are going to end up or where they're going. Um, if I am true to a feeling, a thought, even a pain or a confusion, whatever it might be, if I follow it authentically, I am usually rewarded with an insight, with a learning and it might come as a story, it might come as an image, it might and then then what comes out becomes my teacher. And I know it's true, but I might have to live with it to understand it. So it's like um yeah, so here's a here's a short poem in here that's been was a great teacher for me. It's in the beginning of the book. It's called Like That. I can't take away your pain or save you from your life. But holding the one who is suffering is the only raft we have. Putting your palm on the surface of a lake, you can feel the entire lake. Compassion is like that. I love that poem. That's on page 25. It was one that I had marked. Um, <laughs> so when you said it, I thought, oh, oh, thank easy. you. I can just go to the page. But it, is, it all comes down to really compassion and empathy and putting that before, I am going to say this, putting that before all else. Because if you put compassion and empathy before all else, everything else will fall into place. I firmly believe that. I agree with you. I firmly do too. And so there was a good, you know, like I was following the feeling of trying to write, explore about, you know, I, I, you, you know, when you feel for someone, you can't take their pain away. And yet, right. what else is there to do but hold them? And as, so I, as I followed that, there was this image of putting your hand on the paw, your palm in, on the lake and you feel the entire lake. And so, I, you know, I didn't say, oh, well, that's a, that would be a neat thing to end the poem with. No, I'm not that smart. But by being true to the feeling... I oh there there was that image and I said oh my God that that that's the teacher that's you know, the reward for being yeah yeah it really is it's the compassion what's funny is I don't know if all little kids do this but I know I've done it I've done it in the kitchen sink where the water's there and the bubbles are there and I just put my hand right on the <laughs> surface and I can feel I swear I swear I have done this a million times and I've, we live on a lake we're very fortunate that we live on a lake and, and when you go in the lake you can put your hand you can be standing in the lake and yet you get a different sense when you put your hand just on the surface not your whole hand is yes. wet just the palm of your hand is wet it's crazy I know but it's real and it works and it's true and I've never really done it in the ocean I haven't been to the ocean all that often but you know it's there's something about doing that, even in dishwater. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah. And then that, that helped and, and the reward and having an image like that, discovering an image like that, um, then it's so visual. It's like that helps remind me how far reaching compassion can be. It is very far reaching and it's, it's not taught and it should be in schools. It should be just something that we are taught so we can learn how to grow it and feel it and not just, you know, empathy as well, but not to be an empath because personally I don't believe in anyone being an empath. I don't think you can be a sad or a happy or an empath. I think you can be empathic. But, you know, when I see this type of thing, I think children need to learn this. Children need to learn what compassion is so they can feel for others and, you know, put that above their own needs in the moment unless it's, you know, dire, in which case they need to take care of themselves first, but have the compassion for the other person, have the empathy. This world would be a totally different place. And I think your poems bring all this out. It brings out the compassion and the empathy and the sympathy and the, the warmth and the love and the forgiveness. It brings out all of that. You, this, this volume, which consists of three books, brings out so much. I can't believe there's going to be six more. <laughs> I'm like dying uh-huh. for the next six. <laughs> well, thank thank you so much. Thank you. No, I, you know, and I feel like, and this is when I, you know, uh, as I teach and and offer circles and retreats, and and this is what we do in those circles is just really compare notes on what it is to be here, and enter a heart space and uh, listen to each other, and and in fact, you know, writing the right after all these years writing is really for me listening and taking notes Mm. listen Mm. listening and taking notes uh as a part of of you know of being a part of of the larger part of life so here's a poem let me this is um uh called the life after tears okay it's it's on page 70 oh i'm not sure it's on it (laughs) Uh, well i i I, (laughs) Yeah. 59. 59. Oh, okay. Let me find it. Okay. Yeah, I got to, I'm, okay, 59. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, here we go. So let me just share. So this is actually, um, because this is compassion about, and an example of compassion in my life. So this is about I have a dear, dear friend. He's actually coming to visit tomorrow. We've been friends for over 40 years. And when I, <laughs> I in my 30s, I almost died from a rare form of lymphoma. And he was one of the people who helped save my life. He was there yeah, every God day. Was. And yeah, and we, of course, are close. And last year, you know, he's the same, in the same age group as me. And, but last year, he lost his wife suddenly to a massive heart attack and oh, so about a year funny. and a half a half ago and oh my god you know of course i wanted i am there for him i wanted to be there for him and and it's brought us even closer and and being with him in his grief you know i've been learning a lot from him and one of the things last time or he visited here he was sitting in my study in his rocker and he was, you know, tearful and devastated by this loss. But he said, you know, I'm now living in the life after tears. Mm-hmm. And whether you're, op- whether you're open by pain or joy, um, once we have cracked 
the wall around our heart, oh, then we're in, we're in, we're in the life after tears. We're in a different world, a very beautiful world where everything is real and we help each other with what hurts and we share what's good. And so anyway, so this, after he said that to me, I wrote this poem called The Life After Tears. Mm. In, the life, in the life before tears, there are endless plans and we avoid the difficult feelings at all costs. As if grief, pain, and loss are canyons we'll never climb out of. But then one day, while not looking, someone dear dies or a dream breaks like a plate. And our world as we've known it is blown apart. Then we discover that falling in the canyon is our initiation. And the river at the bottom, well, that's the only water that will keep us alive. I wish it were different, but the reward for being hollowed out is that the song then sings us. I love that last line. The song sings us. The song, and, and, and so this is a thank you, and this is another example. So, so that, that came at the end, and I, had, I loved that, but I said, well, what does that mean? I had to be with it. And as I started letting that be my teacher, so I discovered, and this is kind of like maybe obvious once you look at it, but I would say, I don't know if all, because you never want to say all, but every musical instrument I can think of is hollowed out. Otherwise, there's no music. Mhm. Yes, it's hollowed out somehow. It has right. to be. You know, Otherwise, drums, it's a guitars, <laughs> cello. Right. Yeah. Right. So this is like wow. So that's like yeah. I wish it were different, but part of being human is that life hollows us out so that the song can come through, and nobody likes being hollowed out. And so, kind of one of the purposes of love is we got to hold each other up to the hollowing out. Not, not, you know, we don't got to look for, to be hollowed out. I mean, just like nature, like I think, I think what I've learned from almost dying from cancer is that what erosion is to nature is what suffering is for humans. Not, not the way we hurt each other. That that's, doesn't have to happen. But just the friction of life. Everybody, everybody is worn open in time so that the song can come through. I wish it were different. And a different, beautiful but song the, it is, yeah. Yes, it is a beautiful song. For it everyone, everyone is different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it absolutely is. Now, you broke down this volume into three separate books in one volume. And, you know, first of all, well, the title is A Thousand Dawns is the first book in the volume. The second is The God's Visit. And the third is The Tone in the Center of the Bell. I love that title. It just did something to me. I, I couldn't wait to get into it. So, but how, how did you come up with these titles and select the poems for each one? Because you've got six more volumes coming. It had to be a process and difficult, but how did you do so, that? So, it's, again, it's a very intuitive process. So what I do with, with poems, and this is where uh, an example of listening and following what I hear. So... I, I had A Thousand Dawns. I had those three titles that feel, felt very true to me. And then I went through the poems, and I started to sort them intuitively. Well, I think this is a God's Visit poem. Hmm. I think this is A Thousand Dawn poem. 
okay. And then when I had a when I had a rough pile of each, and and honestly, T Love, I, so then I would I I may I I printed out at least the titles, if not if the poems were short, I would print out the poems, and I printed out all the ones that might be in the Thousand Dawns book, right? And then uh-huh. I laid them out. I laid them out on the floor, and I got a pot of coffee, and then I sat and I looked at them. I started to be in conversation with them. I said, "Okay, tell me how you want to go together. What yeah, am I missing? Where? What do I need? <laughs> what do I need to listen to?" And then, amazingly, one popped out and kind of said, "Well, I need you need to start with me." Another one said, "Well, you need to end with me." And, uh, and then started, the pattern started to appear. And then before I knew it, the organic structure started to sh- present itself. And then I did that with all three of those books. And then it was clear to me that A Thousand Dawns came first and God's Visit came, the God's Visit came second and the tone in the center of the bill, b- bell came third. And, and that's kind of also how I've learned you know, like when I write my nonfiction, you know, my publishers call them nonfiction, but it, it's really all poetry. It's just arranged in a larger canvas. They're just in paragraphs rather than stanzas. It, it really is all the quality of perception and the, the honesty of heart. So there, it, it, to me, it's all poetry. But that's also how I have for the last 10 or 15 years, more, 20 maybe, put put books together is that you know, a ch- uh, something will uh, will show itself, and then I'll pursue it, and it'll become quote a chapter. And then I'll print. I'll uh, after enough exploring and learning, I'll print all the titles of the chapters out, and I'll say, okay, I don't, I don't. You know, we're taught as kids in like English. Okay, you will have an outline, and you will do this, this, and this, and this. Right. Well, no, right. I, n- no, I let life. Tell me what the outline is, and then I put it together how it shows me. Which is great because when I asked you this question and you started saying, "Well, first I got the titles," I'm like, "You got the title." <laughs> like, but this is not how I learned to do an outline. I, I thought exactly that thought, <laughs> and to have you, you know, it's not how I learned to do an outline. Okay, so now you got the titles for this particular volume. Do you have the titles ready? Like, did you get way more titles than that, and you just opted to work with three at a time, or are you working yeah, on each I, volume I, independently? I have more. I have more that have come, and some sometimes <laughs> titles come at the end, but but sometimes they come in their doorways. They're like saying, "Hey." pay attention here. This is, there's a whole thing here if you enter it. And so then I start to, then I, then I just have that kind of lens on. And, and then I think, you know, like with the tone in the center of the bell is really about how that tone, you know, keeps ringing long after our ears can hear it. Uh It just keeps ringing. And what, so, so with that as a theme, you know, the things that matter in life are really intangible. You can't really see them. But these are the forces, the spiritual forces that give life to everything. You know, love. Where, where's love? Can you, you can't hold it in your hand. You can't, you know, you can't, you show, but it manifests in everything. And the same thing with truth and beauty. 
and and even grief even you know so so these forces that ring like if you ring a bell so the, the so the theme was saying to me okay pay attention what are the things where are examples of of the forces of life as they start to come into us and then they they still exist on the other side after like wind through a flag you see the wind because it goes through the flag and the wind keeps going but we wouldn't see it if if there weren't trees or flags or things that stood up to the wind we'd never the wind wouldn't be visible right right so this is a real showing of what that is even from the get-go, A Thousand Dawns, those <laughs> poems speak to our uh, getting there to me, not being there yet, like a learning process. Yeah, Almost absolutely. Like the, and this is, okay. And this is another thing. So, so that being the, quote, author doesn't mean that I have the key to what everything means. I need you as the reader so we can look at it together. You know, there was a poet, uh, maybe you heard of her or maybe not, Denise Levertov, and she died maybe you know, 10 years ago or so. And she was born in England but spent most of her time in America and taught and wrote here, lived here. She had this wonderful poem, and I can just tell you about it. It's called The Secret, and she was giving a reading at a college a poetry reading, and before the reading started, two undergraduate women, came, bright-eyed, full of life, came running up to her before the reading, and they said, oh, thank you, thank you. We discovered the secret of life in a line in one of your poems. Thank you so much. We can't stay for the reading, but thank you, and they run off. Oh, no. Oh, no. And, of course, Denise Levertov goes on to say, wait a minute. You didn't tell me the secret. You didn't tell me the poem or the line. Wait. And then she says, I thank, I thank them for believing there is such a secret and finding it again and again and again and losing it again and again. And what I love about that poem is that she, she needed the reader, you know, together. It doesn't just because it comes through us like lightning through a, a lightning rod doesn't mean we know the meaning. So when you right. say what a thousand dawn means to you, I say thank you. And maybe that coincides with what I thought it meant, but I maybe, you know, together maybe we come up with what it means. Yeah, because to me it was where where I am right now, you know, or where I was before I read the book. Let me put it that way, because as you go through, you're gaining information and growing more. So it was uh, the start of a journey, if you will. Uh, you know, and I know it will resonate, each section will resonate differently with each person because of where they are. But to me, that was like the start. And then I got into the God's visit, and I was like, okay, this is where there's a lot more growth happening here. And then the tone in the center of the bell seemed to be, oh, I get it, just for this volume. So that's why I say the next volumes no matter what they're named, are probably going to be in a similar, maybe, I don't know. I'm thinking they may be in a similar pattern for me where it's this is where you are now, that you've read that first one and, and you've, you know, parsed it out and you have internalized it. And then maybe the second book in the second volume will be another growth spurt, if you will. And then, ah, see where you are. 
I don't, that's kind of what I got from it. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Um, you know, uh, here's a, here's a poem that, which is, uh, in a way about, well, it is about my, my, my grandmother on my father's side was more of a mother to me than my mother, quite honestly. And she was just mythic to me. And, you know, I was raised Jewish and, and I have a great tie to the Jewish heritage, though after almost dying from cancer, I became a student. I'm a student of all paths uh, uh-huh. because everyone was so kind to offer me help. And having survived and being here, I was not all those years ago, and I'm still not wise enough to know what worked and what didn't. And so I've been challenged to believe in everything. But here, this, but all of that, here's this poem. It's called Never Lost, Always Found. And I th- think it's on, well, wait a minute, I can tell you what page it's on. Hold on. Uh, 181, 181. Okay. I never like reading lost, along. Always, <laughs> yeah, never lost, always found. On the darkest night of the year, okay, on the darkest night of the year, oh, Susan's my wife. On the darkest night of the year, Susan asks about Grandma Minnie yet again. And again I soften and speak of being a child in your Brooklyn apartment, Brooklyn kitchen, sitting next to your stove as you made latkes, patting the excess oil and giving them to me while they were warm. And Susan jumps up as she does every year, as if for the first time, and starts grating potatoes. I put on klezmer music, and we make latkes and eat standing in the kitchen. Our dog jumps to the music or to the presence of something unseen. I grab her paws, and we dance briefly to the music of the old world. It's just the simplest, you know, of things that we do tend to lose and forget, but in your poem, Never Lost, Always Found, we can bring it back up again. Well, I'm sure you have, right? There's these, we all have, like, like potato pancakes. That's what latkes is. That right. is such, like, a memory food for me. Mm-hmm. Like, if I smell, right? I mean, if I smell that, I'm back in that Brooklyn kitchen when I was a kid. Yep. And, yep. and so it's like a comfort food. I'm sure. Do you have one? You must have one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, I have a couple of um, of comfort foods. But, yes, one of the things that um, my grandmother used to make is when we'd walk in, she lived with us, and when, when, we, when she, we would walk in the house, her apartment's on the second floor, we could smell when she was baking brownies for my brother. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's her. great. We were the girls. It was for my brother. So uh, you always smell the brownies. It's like, oh, those are for my brother. Okay, fine. But we knew what she was doing, <laughs> you know, and, uh, uh, and you could always smell. I'm of Polish descent, and we could always smell when my aunts were there and making pierogies. And it was, oh, oh. So, yeah, it brings back that warmth. And that's exactly what happens when you read the poem, because when I was reading that, I wasn't thinking of latkes. Although she made potato pancakes and we loved them, it wasn't what we, it wasn't that type yeah. of memory, but I could go there. I could go to the, oh, I can smell this. Because you literally can smell it. You literally can smell it just by reading something that somebody else says and you start to think of your own. I swear, I can smell it. Oh, <laughs> sure. And, well, and, and somewhere I've, I read where that smell is the sense that triggers memory the most. Mm. Yeah, that, well, that makes sense. 
You know, even if it's not there, even if you're just reading something and you think that you're smelling it and you're smelling it, it's like, wow, okay, that's really weird. I can smell that, you know. Uh, Yeah, that definitely did that for me. But it's also that you think you forgot and then something triggers and you remember. So the name of the poem, Never Lost, Always Found, it made so much sense with that poem. Because you you don't think of that every day, you know, but when you do think about it, that's what happens. It's very, yeah, you're... Your writing is very poetic <laughs> and very magical, uh-huh. you know. It, it, tru- it truly is. It, it does an awful lot for the soul. I find it to be very soul-serving where you can go deep. And it doesn't matter, you know, each – not all the poems, but so many of them that I read were like, oh, yeah. And you got it. You got it. You got it. You got it. You know, and I understood what it meant for me. As I said before, it will mean something different for everybody else, but it certainly is – I don't know. It's like it, it's kind of life changing because you can go deep. Oh well, thank you. That I'm so I so appreciate that. That means the world. It's the God's truth. I noticed that. Um, well, there's two poems that I like. I well that I could. I like them all, but two that stood out or that I had to choose. And the first one, of course, is the last poem in the book. Okay, so I'm going to let you uh, read that one in, in, in a minute or two, okay? Okay. But the one that I loved and that for so, it, I don't know why, but the words, the way that it got to me, people who know me when I read this, they'll know, yeah, I don't know why that would get to her that way, but it did. It's called The Way, and it starts out with, when a horse runs, it leaps and touches oh, down yeah. by turns. Yeah. In just this way, yeah. our life is always moving between joy and sorrow. Trying to avoid this is its own sorrow, like a mad bird trying to escape the sky. Rather, our call is to help each other. And that, oh, I'm sorry, I screwed up. Our call is to help each other rise and help each other land. And I just loved that because... I'm not into horses or anything, so I was surprised about that, but I thought it's just so true the way that our life is always moving between joy and sorrow, and really our call is to help each other rise and to help each other land, and it just hit me in a way. Well, thank you, and I think, you know, one of the things that I learned from discovering this poem, which came out of my, like I said earlier about Emerson, Saying that we live it before we understand it is that, of course, like everybody, I've lived that for for my whole life. You know, it's we between joy and sorrow, and we we always think or we're taught, you know, because nobody, you know, it's sorrow is painful, so we think, oh God, if mm-hmm. I not not go there. But then when you think about it, this, that it's a rhythm to life, and like a horse going up and touching down, going up and touching down. Well. If it doesn't touch down, it can't it can't live its life. So you right. can't eliminate sorrow. It has to be a movement between the two, and we help each other rise, and we help each other land, and over and over again. And this is just part of the mystery of life. And of course, if we don't experience the sorrow, we will never understand the depth and breadth of the joy. So we need to experience both in order to feel into that. You know, you never want to Absolutely. wish anybody ill, but you want people to have just enough pain to understand and be grateful for the, the immense joy that comes. Not, oh, and, and pain's not even the right word, but just enough 
you know, just enough of the down stuff to be able to really soar with the good stuff. Well, and I think it, I think it's experiencing um, moving, not avoiding, but moving through the difficult passages, which everyone has. No mm-hmm. one escapes. And in fact, no. there's a whole, I, I think in one of the poems I talk about, um, that there is a whole different level of suffering that comes from resisting suffering. Yes. Yes, there was one. Oh, I wish I wrote that down. I didn't write the name of that one. Oh, but that's yeah, all right. No, but, but our conversation that. just brought it up. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yep. Um, you know, it, it's just feeling, feeling into things and just going through it as, yeah. I, I don't know. Your whole book, to just summarize, was just so enlightening and inspiring and motivating. And it really, I think, brings a lot up for the reader. I think any reader would get so much out of this, regardless of where you are in your journey of life. If you're, you know, 16 years old, 30 years old, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, it doesn't matter. You know, I think it will bring things up that would be good, that would help to bring a better understanding while we're still here and can do that, to have an understanding well, and see, see where you. we are. But I would love it if, because we're getting close to the top of the hour now. I would love it if we could end with you reading your last poem in the book called Free Fall. Oh, sure, sure. Free Fall. Mm-hmm. If you have, Very if last you have, poem. yeah, if you have one hour of air and many hours to go, you must breathe slowly. If you have one arm's length and many things to care for, you must give freely. If you have one chance to know God and many doubts, you must set your heart on fire. We are blessed. Each day is a chance. We have two arms. Fear wastes air. I loved that. I loved that being the last poem in this volume. I really did. I thought, wow, that speaks loudly. It's oh, just a beautiful you. book, thank Mark. You. As all, all of your books are, it's just a beautiful book. And I can't wait till the other. Do you know when the next one will be coming out? Oh, it might be um, uh, maybe a year and a half or so. About a year and a half, I think. We'll, we'll be in. I'm sure Eileen will let you know. And um, I'm sure she we'll, will, we'll, yeah. We'll, I, and I'll be watching for it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank so you, you so get much. On it's and so start wonderful. <laughs> well, it's so wonderful you know, to be with you again. Oh, it absolutely is. Before we go, I would love it if you would tell our listeners how they may learn more about you and your work and all of your offerings. Well, thank you. So through my website, markmepo.com, um, and also through live.markmepo.com, um, uh, which is where you'll find you can register for webinars I give, but you'll find all my books and where I'm teaching and the things, uh, you know, I also teach, um, uh, I live in Michigan and I teach a year long journey for a small group of people, only 16 people. And we go through four weekends over a year together. And wow. uh, so I do that. Every, and that's, if people go to my website right now, it's open for next year's uh, registration. And probably going to fill up quickly, <laughs> I'm sure. 
Oh, my goodness. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. Uh, you just hold on the line until I do the outro, and then I'll, I'll speak to you in a minute, okay? Okay, sure. Thank you. Okay, listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. You Now it's your turn to do some good. We need you to spread the word. We know you enjoy what you hear on From the Heart Radio, so please share it with your friends. We live in a most challenging and constantly changing world, and that's why I have the guests that I do, to keep you apprised so you won't get lost in the dross of life. We need to stay aware so we can navigate easily and live the life we're meant to live productively, healthfully, and purposefully. This is where you find the tools to do just that. So please share what you heard by sending the link for this show to everyone you know and let them have the same opportunity that you just had so they can learn and grow and make the world a better place for all as well. Please also check out Soji Huggles Children's Foundation. This is a a foundation that I started seven years ago. Every dollar of every donation directly supports children in need, 100%. We're run solely by volunteers. Nobody gets paid. Nobody, nobody, nobody. Every penny supports the children, and right now we're helping subsidize the cost of mental health sessions for children who might not otherwise receive what is really right now critical and much-needed therapy. So, you know, if you don't have strong mental health, you can't learn or function well at all. Children need our help, and together we can provide it. So please, if you like what you hear, make a donation to sojikids.org, S-O-J-I-K-I-D-S.org. Your donation makes a difference. Every dollar matters, and you can be a part of making that difference. At Soji Huggles, we are investing in a brighter tomorrow by giving them a better today. Visit our website, S-O-J-I-K-I-D-S.org, and make a donation now. Thank you. Please follow us on Twitter at Soji Huggles. And while you're in your social media accounts, please be sure to like us on Facebook. We leave you with our From the Heart Radio's Thought for the Week. And this is a quote from Mark Nepo himself. To harden will help us get through life. To soften will let us experience life. Those are his very first words in the book that we've discussed tonight, the very first volume of the series, and it truly sets the tone. And from there, you will find you will learn much. I am your host, T-Love, at From the Heart Radio, intending you and yours a most enjoyable week. Remember, living from your heart is quite easy. You need only give thanks to do so. Take care and stay well. When I remember how